Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining. Uh, this is a repeat class. Last night's class, for whatever reason, was me, the, we had a problem with the audio. And I think we finally, Baruch Hashem, figured it out, and it shouldn't be a problem ever again. <laughs> we, had a, we had a problem with the camera two weeks ago. We got a new camera, and that was an audio. So it's a sign that uh, if we're being challenged, it's a sign that it's good, good stuff. All right. Most of the time, that's the sign. Okay. So this is Parsha in my life class for Parsha's Emor. If anybody wants to sponsor this class retroactively, I don't have a sponsor on the class, so it's available for anybody that wants to sponsor. Uh, you can be the, have the merit. That's if you like the class, you can have the merit sponsoring it for a birthday, for a yard site, for any special occasion. It would be a big, big help for us and a big, big help for whoever you're sponsoring it for. It's an exciting class today. I think it'll have add a lot, a lot of insight and meaning to what's happening today's in the world. Uh, there's a very, very big problem I think that uh, we're all aware of and um, must be bothering any um, Jew in the world and a lot of non-Jews as well. And that is, what's with the sudden rise of anti-Semitism? Uh, we've hoped after the Holocaust, we've kind of put that to rest, and something like this would not happen again. The call that was always never again, and suddenly we hear we're seeing such vile anti-Semitism. Um, now, in Europe, I would say it's not such a chiddush, it's not such a novelty. Um, Europe is soaked with Jewish blood. And the fact that 70 years have passed by since the last um, incomprehensible massacre of Jews, but for 70 years there kind of was more or less a, a, uh, a pause in the persecution that has really been going on for thousands of years. Uh, you can say that uh, the people have not gotten their Jew hatred out of their system, out of their blood, out of their bloodstream, and you can say that there is again an appetite for blood. Very, very sad. Uh, may God protect all the Jews in Europe. 
but what's shocking is that it is happening across the world, and for the first time it has reached the shores of the United States of America. What happened this year in Pittsburgh and what happened in Poway is an indicator of a certain boldness to the white supremacists and the far, far right uh, that are, that we've always known, the people that are see themselves as uh, the continuation of Hitler, may his name be blotted out, and um, you know, I have very, 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 very crazy and radical ideas. Um, that has, we know it's been in, in the United States, the neo-Nazis and so on and so forth, white supremacists, they've been around, it's there. The only problem is that they're, they're becoming a little more uh, active, which is very scary and very disturbing. Um, but what's even of a greater shock is that there is a un, there is a explicit anti-Semitism taking over the left and the Democratic Party, which is really, really, really scary. Now, a lot of it is a lot of anti-Semitism these days are camouflaged with an excuse of it being anti-Israel, but not anti-Jewish. But we all know that's a hoax, and at the core of it is simply an anti-Semitic belief. And for the first time in history, that we see that it, within Congress. There are people voicing very, very, uh, saying things that are anti-Semitic, and they're not being hushed, shushed, and kicked out. Uh, they're still given important positions. The, the uh, official establishment, the, the Democratic Party, has not taken an official stand against them. We're talking about um, Omar, and Congressman Omar and Congressman, uh, I don't know how she pronounces her name, I think Tlaib, or, um, who's been saying, said things about the Holocaust that are astonishing. And it's kind of being excused and explained away as if it's nothing. We've also seen that last week there was a terrorist attack against Israel. That 700 rockets came flying over into cities where people live, children go to school, uh, an attack on a sovereign nation, directed not to the military, not even to soldiers, directed to civilians. Now, if this would happen anywhere else in the world, it would be like, whoa, how, how dear. And there hasn't been one condemnation from all the contestants on the left running for office. I think Cory Booker um, condemned it after he was explicitly asked. And there was one other candidate that's uh, not too popular said something about it. How can that be? We also saw just recently that during the APAC um, conferences, which has traditionally been attended by the right and the left, it, been, it, was, been, it was bipartisan and for the... And, because the United States has always been unequivocal in their support for Israel. And over here for the first time, the most of the, the those running for president, not one of them showed up. It was always understandable. It was always a thing that if you're, if you're running for office, you're going to go to APAC. That's 
an important lobby uh, institution. Uh, it, it has a just for the fact that it has a lot of influence, it has a lot of power, a lot of money, if you can say, and which is needed for candidates and so on and so forth. For the candidates not to go to that must be that they're feeling very, 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 very far and very separated from Israel. And I'm not even talking about the fact that in the previous administration and the entire Democratic Party, I don't see the entire, but the, the majority, um, went along with uh, President Obama's um, um, deal of the century kind of to make with Iran. And to uh, which, if it would be good for the Jews, how come the Jews were not the ones who wanted it? When I say the Jews who didn't want it, I'm not talking about Jews in America because they're living comfortably over here. But Jews in Israel did not want this catastrophic deal. And Netanyahu came and warned and stood in the Congress and gave a speech about the danger and the danger and the danger of it. And we all know, anybody that has a little bit of intelligence knows that if you make a deal with a country like that, that's for seven years they can't enrich uranium, and it's after seven years they can break out and do whatever they want. And during that time, they're free. They, 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 we, we open up for them billions and billions and billions of dollars. So even if during these seven years the inspectors are going to inspect it and they're going to make sure that there, are, there is no uranium that is being enriched and they're not furthering their endeavors uh, to um, build nuclear bombs, uh, nuclear weapons to destroy Israel, God forbid. Um, this is in addition to the fact, which I mentioned many times, that they were not even going to inspect military installations because the Iranians said military installations, I can't let foreigners in to, to inspect it. So that, that's so insane, because what do you think? We're, if they want to continue their operations, they can do it in military installations. But let's say, like Netanyahu had discovered when he showed the world of Iran's nuclear plans last year. Uh, but even if we to say that, let's say, Iran is really going to abide completely by it, but after seven years, they're free to do whatever they want. What, seven years? Seven, seven years goes by in a blink of an eye. And for that, you're putting over six million Jews in the threat of a regime that claims death to Israel. So this is unbelievable. What is this if not pure anti-Semitism, pure carelessness and recklessness against the Jewish people? So what exactly is going on? How does this come about? Take a look what's happening in England with the Labour Party, in which it's so frightening, the, the clear, outright anti-Semitism. So one has got to wonder and say, what is happening? But what I, what I think is really astounding and interesting is that as strong as we're seeing many, many people, and which of course all this includes the BDS movement, how much effort has been put in that the, this musical f uh, contest in Israel, I think Eurovision, I think it's what it's called. I'm not that familiar with, 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 with the actual uh, event, which was, was in, Israel was entitled to have it in, in Israel because they won last year. How much effort was made to stop the various different artists from going there? I would, uh, I would applaud those artists that are refusing to be intimidated, which is something to their tremendous credit. And may God bless them for their, for their support of Israel. So we took BDS, take uh, also in college campuses, the unbelievable breakout of 
anti-Semitism, and even to the point of sometimes coming down to violence. It's horrible. What happened today, in, 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 today or yesterday in Switzerland, the Jewish woman stabbed. How many people in Brooklyn, New York, being beaten up for no other reason but for the fact that they're Jewish, in addition to the attacks that we've seen happening. So the question is both from the right and from the left, what is happening? But on the other hand, let's take a look at the, the good side of things. The Jews always had various different friends amongst the Gentiles. But even when they were friendly, they were friendly, and that's about it. But to have support, and if there were those who supported uh, Jews, and there were righteous Gentiles throughout history that even laid their life on the line to help Jewish people, I'm alive. I am alive today because of the kindness. I mean, God was the one who protected my family during the Holocaust. But I am physically alive today. The messenger of Hashem, the angel that was sent, was a Polish doctor who saved my entire family, kept them in an attic at the risk of his life, the life of himself and his family, his children. It's unbelievable. So I do recognize that there are friends of the Jewish people amongst the Gentiles. In Hebrew, there is a word for it called Chasidei Umoisa Olam, the righteous of the nations. And in Yad Vashem in Israel, you have the, so many of them that are commemorated and recognized and they have trees planted in their honor. So that's incredible. But still, it's just a selected few. Generally, the Jewish people were persecuted throughout, the, throughout our long and difficult exile. What we're seeing now in the United States for the first time is a support for Israel from the Christian right, or rather we should say particularly the evangelicals. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of people who are so supportive and so dedicated and send money and support and will do whatever they can to assist the Jewish people and to assist Israel. And it's not only the evangelicals in America, but you have them exploding in South America and Latin America. Take a look in Brazil and other places. It's really, really astounding. So on the one hand, we see people that are going so, so, so far off. People that we would never expect to behave this way. And yet they're moving so, 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 so into such a state of, into, into darkness, into a, you could say, a war against the Jewish people. Kind of creating an environment close to the 1930s. Take the New York Times um, horrific um, a cartoon that they allowed, okay, with all the apologies and so on and so forth. They allowed a cartoon like that, which is something that is reminiscent of what we saw in 1930s in the, in the, in the German papers. So on the one hand, such vile anti-Semitism. It's almost like people can't control themselves. It's like, it's like something is pulling them into this darkness. I would say it's like demonic forces that are pulling people into this darkness and into hatred of Jews. And again, the animosity reaching a boiling point of such anger and hatred, irrational, inexplainable anger and hatred. On the other hand, such an irrational support and, and, and help to Israel and to the Jewish people like we've never seen before. To mention for good the current president, President Donald Trump, that has been a friend to Israel like no other president ever before him in history. And that is whether you like Trump's policies, whether you don't like Trump's policies, me as a rabbi will declare here, open for whoever hears this class, the best friend for Israel we've ever seen.
So, what's going on? Why are people taking sides? What is happening? It's almost coming down to a point that it's, 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 a, cho- it's a choice. Either you stand with us or with Israel, with the Jewish people, or you stand against Sure, there's still a lot of people in the middle that haven't made up their minds, but it seems like there is a razor blade cutting through humanity, and people are now taking choices to the right or to the left. Um, my point of this class is to give clarity to the Jewish people on what is happening. My point, perhaps, in this class is that those who have not yet made their decisions and where they stand should have maybe more information to be able to make a righteous decision, a good decision that's going to land them on the, on, on, on the winning side in history. It's very important to understand that. And perhaps even those who might harbor animosity and hatred, this, this dark venom that is plaguing so much of the world these days, perhaps that these people can do tshuva and also rethink their position and realize um, that uh, perhaps they don't want to be in, in that very, very dark, dark space. So now, um, let me try to give some clarity and understanding of what this might be all about. If you just give me one second here, someone is knocking on the door. Okay, so to understand this, Understand this above, I'd like to introduce something from this week's Torah portion. Something fascinating. Um, in the parsha this week, it's talking about the mitzvah that God gave to the priests, the Kohanim. Amongst the Jewish people, there's an extra special group. I merited to be part of that group called the Kohanim. These are the descendants of Aaron, Moshe, Moses' brother, Aaron, who were fortunate to be the ones who actually um, serve in the officiate in the holy temple. They have certain commandments that apply to them, which one of them is that they may not come into contact with any dead body. Usually it's a, it's a commandment, it is a mitzvah, it is a good deed to participate in a funeral and uh, involve, it's, it's a, called a chesed, it's a kindness, a chesed shalem, it's a true kindness to involve in helping someone be buried and so on and so forth. The kohen, uh, anybody that is the priestly family may not come into contact with any dead corpse. So the, the Torah says there is one exception, that the Kohen is not only allowed to, but actually commanded to um, make themselves impure. And who is that? That is the, um, when one of the closest relatives of the Kohen pass away. A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, a brother, a wife, and a sister. But by the sister, it's conditional. If the sister is married already, then the Kohen may not, he's allowed to go to her funeral, but he can't come close to the casket, to the coffin. He's not allowed to go to the actual cemetery and be involved in the actual burial. He's not allowed to come into contact with her if she's married. But if she's not married, to his sister, that has not been married, so that's the one that the Kohen is allowed to make himself contaminate to. And not only it's a mitzvah for him to do so. So the Zohar makes a very fascinating statement. The Zohar, fundamental book of Jewish mysticism. So the Zohar says, 
that when it says in the verse that the Jew, that to a sister you're allowed to contaminate yourself, this is a, this be understood also in a more mystical, meta, um, metaphysical way. God is a kohen. Hashem is a kohen. He's like considered, you know, many aspects of the Torah apply to God as well. So if the highest level of holiness is a kohen, and the highest, highest level is, right, is the Kohen Gadol. So God is definitely considered a Kohen. So the Zohar says like this, that when the, when, the, when the verse says to your sister that has not been married to a man, you're allowed to contaminate yourself, it's referring to a certain defilement and a certain spiritual contamination that God is going to allow Himself to become contaminated, whatever that means, that's like really shocking, for the sake of His sister, unmarried sister. And who is the unmarried sister of God? That is, that, that is the Jewish people. So let me read it inside. Rababa Pasach Rababa says, he brings a Pasach in Yeshaya. Yeshaya Samachimel, Isaiah 63. It says in the who who is the one coming from Edom. Chamutz Begodim, he stained clothing. Mi Batsra, he's coming from Batsra and he has stained clothing. So the Zohar goes on to describe that this is talking about the last and final battle which God is going to go out and wage war amongst the nations. And during that battle, God's clothing is going to become soiled, which is this idea of contamination. And who is He doing it for? He's doing it for His beloved younger sister, which is referring to the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is the mother of all Jewish souls, which is really for the Jewish people. To to bring about the final redemption, it's going to involve a certain purification process. Now the Zohar is going to describe something which taking it at face value seems to be very horrific. And therefore it's very important that when we study mysticism and and in general medrash, we have to realize that certain things that are described are not to be explained and understood in their literal meaning, but they're supposed to be understood more homolytically, which means they're supposed to be more understood more as as a a, a certain, um, more in a spiritual sense than in a physical sense. The Zohar is going to describe... A, a, a final battle in where those who have oppressed the Jewish people, many of the Gentile nations are going to be are going to be slaughtered, and there is going to be millions of corpses. Let's read inside, but as uh, please bear with me, uh, because there is a deeper meaning which changes all of this. This doesn't have to be, God forbid, a mass a physical massacre, but something of spiritual content which to me is very clear, again, this is my own take, is very clear, based on, of course, what it says in, in, in Hasidism and in Kabbalah and so on and so forth, um, which is a, a certain process that it happens at the very, very end days, right before the coming of Mashiach, and which I think we're witnessing right now. This is this purification process. So the Bazaar says, Mi Edom, who is coming from Edom, Zamin Nukmal Edom. God is going to dress Himself with garments of vengeance over Edom. Who's Edom? Edom is the descendants of Esau, which begins with Rome. Rome destroyed the temple. But Rome's, Rome's uh, rule didn't last, uh, you know, lasted only for maybe uh, 200 years after the destruction of the temple. Again, I'm not so clear exactly on the history. But after that, it, Rome fell apart, and the Roman exile continues with the exile of the Roman exile continues with the exile of, uh, with, the, with the Jews being in the diaspora 
in the Christian West. Christianity is a continuation of Edom. And what have they done? They destroyed his temple, and they set his chamber, his holy um, um, home, they set it ablaze. And they sent the Jewish people amongst the nations. And therefore God is going to take revenge. He's going to take eternal revenge. Until all the mountains, all the mountains of the world will be filled with the corpses of, of Edom, the Edomites. And then he's going to call upon all the birds. The birds of heaven are going to descend and peck and eat the flesh from these people that have died. He's also going to call all the animals, the Yitzin and Menayo, and they are going to be nourished because there's going to be so much meat from all these people that have perished and died. So the birds and the animals are going to be fed by them. The birds are going to eat seven years and the um, animals of the field are going to eat for 12 months. And the birds seven years. It's going to to become so bad that the the earth will not be able to stand the stench. This is what it means when it says in the Pasuk, in chapter 34 in Isaiah, in Yeshaya, a great slaughter for God is in the city of Batra. Batra is actually in Iraq. The Tevach and a great slaughter Be'eretz Edom in the land of Edom. Ad the Inun Levushin Yistavun, and in this process, God's clothing will become soiled. This is what it says in the verse. Back to Isaiah sixty-three. and all my garments I galti I have soiled. I'm not going to read the entire Zohar, but the Zohar goes to say why is God doing all of this. Why is this happening? They caused the Knesset Yisrael, the Jewish people, to fall to the ground and to fall to the earth, to, to, to be pushed to the earth. Like it says, it brings a verse that the Jewish people have fallen to the ground. For that reason that God is going to take vengeance, to make them defiled, with so many dead. All my clothing I have sold. Why? Because of what it says this week in the Torah portion. To his, to his sister, his virgin sister that is close to him, never got married. That means she never joined the forces of Esav. Esav is called Ish, the man of the field. Esav Ish Sada. Esav is the father of Edom, which is the root of Christianity. The Jewish people have not been seduced by the Christian faith and remained loyal to God. This is what it means that God should make him, to her, he should defile himself. It means that God's garments will become defiled in this process. Which means, begin off for her sake, God is making himself vulnerable for impurity. And why? Because God comes to pick up the Jewish people from exile. God desires to lift her up. 
And that's why it says, Bayoimahu on that day, Akim I will lift up as Sukkas David, the, the, the hut of King David Hanaifelis that has fallen. Okay, this is the passage in the Zohar. Now reading this, it seems like we're talking about some kind of Armageddon and some kind of a war and millions and millions of dead and so on and so forth. Judaism is not into all that gory stuff. The people who read the Tanakh and don't have Jewish souls and don't have Jewish sensitivity for human life interpret these things in a very coarse way and are lacking the refinement to be able to see things a little more elegantly. It's important for us to be able to understand that the Tanakh was given to the Jewish people. We're the ones who are able to interpret it. And I'm going to say that again because we're not going to interpret it as, as violence, but something far more refined. And basically what you're seeing right now taking place in this world is the manifestation of this slaughter. The slaughter is actually a separation of soul and body that's taking place amongst the Gentile nations. The good in the nations are joining holiness and the evil in the nation is becoming separated and identified and separating itself completely from God and from holiness to stand distinct. And that's this purification process. It has to do with the story of the beginning, beginning of creation. When Adam was instructed not to eat from the tree of knowledge that's good and bad. The Torah refers to it, the Bible refers to it as good and bad. Good and bad means it's a mixture. Before Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, he was thoroughly good. Once he ate from the tree of knowledge, the venom of the snake entered into his bloodstream, him and his wife Eve, Chava. And all their descendants became a mixture of good and evil. And not just their descendants, but it actually went into the, it went into the animals as well, because it says they fed the animals, and it actually went into the very soil of the earth. As the verse says later, that God cursed the earth because of Adam and Eve. So there became a mixture of good and bad. And the process of the Jewish people and the giving of the Torah is to separate the good and the bad. Evil can only thrive when it is holding on to good. When there are powers of holiness, of goodness that are embedded in evil in a manner that is benign, in a manner that is not evident, it couches itself, it dresses itself up in some kind of masquerades as goodness, but really in the core it's evil. So the process of Torah and mitzvahs is a screening of the observance of mitzvot in the world. Everything that God gave the Jewish people at Sinai and all the mitzvahs are meant to impact the universe. And what is it meant to do? Anybody that's familiar with a little Kabbalistic insights, it's meant to elevate sparks of holiness and to separate the good from the bad. This process of purification, separation, that's why all of Jewish study is to, is, we're always learning about this is kosher, this is not kosher. And then it presents a different question. And then present it to the rabbis. This is pure or not pure? And the rabbis have to use the analytical uh, um, 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 tools that God has given them, given to Moses, given to Moshe Rabbeinu at Sinai, to Har Sinai, of how to decide good from bad. And when we study this, and then we apply it in our lives, we push away that which is bad, which is not kosher in Jewish life, not necessarily in Gentile life, but in Jewish life, this is not kosher food, and so on and so forth, by us pushing that out, we're causing a certain purification in the cosmos. All that purification is going to reveal itself moments before the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Mashiach. 
And what's going to happen is, is that good and evil are going to separate. They're not going to be one big mush together anymore. So when you see people that stand in opposition to God, that hate God, I'll give you a little example. In the United States of America, just, I was talking about what's happening to the left. It's unbelievable. It's scary. So just today I watched a little video. You can, sure you can look it up. Just happened recently. In Congress, in the House of Representatives, they were administering an oath to a couple of people that were witnesses for something. I don't know what it was. They were administering the oath, and everybody was sitting there. And when they administered the oath, for the first time, they changed the oath, and they did not mention God. They mentioned by, by, uh, by the threat or by the punishment of perjury, whatever it was, that you swear that you're telling the truth, and so on and so forth. The people raised their hand, and they accepted then someone, I don't, know, I, forgot, I don't know who he was, chairman, whatever, um, objects. I, I guess he's from the Republican Party. Objects. And he says, I, I just heard an oath, but I realize you didn't mention God in that oath. He says, hasn't this been the tradition in the United States for the last 200 years we mention God in every oath? So um, the one in, 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 in charge uh, says, no, 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 uh, people are not comfortable, something like that, and therefore we're not going to say it. So this rep- representative says, hey, hold it. Can we, let me ask the witnesses, are they willing to retake the oath, stated the way it has always been stated for the last um, few hundred years, since the founding fathers. We have God on our dollar bill. So let's re, 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 re-administer the oath and let's ask them. So one of the representatives, sadly, makes, announces, the guy in charge, I don't want to say his name because he happens to be Jewish, which is painful, very painful to me. And he says, no, we don't want to do that because we don't want to put the witnesses under the, that they have to identify who doesn't want to be under God and who does, so therefore we're just skipping it. This is just a tiny indication that in the United States, there is now a movement that literally wants to obliterate God. And now here's the thing. Till now it was a fight for certain things, principles that are against the morality. Whether it was destruction of marriage between a man and a woman, that is the way God has established it, a man and a woman. Introducing immoral ways of life, which is against the way God wants. Or whether it was abortion, whether it was all kinds of other things, so it's all camouflaged, yes, yeah, so on and so forth, but it's reaching a point where it's not hiding anything. It's saying literally we hate God. And we don't want to have a mention of God, and I'm not saying everybody in the left or everybody in the Democrat, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that you're seeing it in the Congress, you're seeing it in the House of Representatives. So that's on the left, where you see clearly it's identifying itself as completely dis. dis they themselves are saying we dislike God or we don't want to have anything to do with Him. That is huge. That is huge. Take God out of the world and you're left with zero success. It is the most dangerous thing for America. Yet they're doing it in the House of Representatives. Unashamed. Now on the other hand, the extreme right that we spoke about, 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 about before, which generally are believers maybe even strong Christian believers like this murderer, this killer who blamed the Jewish people for killing uh, the founder of Christianity. Right? So he blames him for that. And he blames so he's a believer. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man of faith. But he hates 
the, he hates Israel, he hates the Jewish people. And here is, the, here is something to, to, to be understood. If you hate the Jewish people, you're hating God. Because you can't say to someone, I love you, but I hate your children. Or I love you, and I hate the wife that you've chosen. Imagine showing up to a, a wedding, your best friend's wedding. And you go over to the groom, and you say, Oh, it's such a beautiful wedding. But your bride, I can't stand her. I hate her. I want to kill her. I want to... Obviously, that's the ultimate insult. You'll probably be kicked out of the wedding, right? So you, here you have like this. Extreme right, maybe identifying with Hashem, with God, but hating Israel, hating Jews. And the left side, you have a complete war against, against even Hashem. And, and obviously, we can understand whether this is all conscious or whether this is subconscious, a war against Israel. And as I said earlier, allowing the Iran deal was actually a war against Israel. Threatening and, and, and trying to stop Jewish settlements in Israel and so on and so forth is a war against God because God gave Israel to the Jewish people. So, what are we seeing happening right now? People are taking sides. Why are people taking sides? But as I mentioned earlier, how much of the United States has been in support of Israel? More than ever before. More than ever before. Gentiles, more than ever before. So how, what's happening? So now let's take a look deeper and understand what the Zohar is saying about this last and final battle. And that's going to make God's clothing soiled. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the birds are going to come down and eat the flesh for seven years? What does it mean that the beasts of the field are going to eat the flesh for 12 months? So the Lubavitcher Rebbe, his father, Rebbe Levi Yitzchok Schneerson, phenomenal Kabbalists, a great, great, great genius in Jewish mysticism explains this passage in the Zohar, but not, again, taking it out of its meaning of blood and out of the coarseness and revealing its refined idea behind it. We're not talking about vultures coming and ripping flesh. We're not talking about lions and tigers and bears eating people. We're talking about spiritual dynamics that are happening right now. And this is as follows. He says like this. As mentioned earlier, the are in order for something to have life, the only God is life. That's the rule. Hashem is life. And God enlivens the cosmos. God enlivens the universe. If God enlivens everything, how does evil exist? And evil is totally antithetical to God. The problem is that Hashem created the world with no material. He created the world without any material. He created the world ex nihilo, from absolute nothingness. The only power that was used to create the world is God's power Himself. And God is infinitely and absolutely, absolutely, inherently good. And God doesn't have a streak of evil inside of him. There is no Satan in God. If that's the case, and God did not have Satan as a partner when he created the world. 
So how in the world does evil come from a perfectly, perfectly, perfectly good God? So the way it is explained, and I'm going to try to build this explanation up because this is fundamental to understanding everything we're talking about tonight, or today, that the way it works is as follows. Everything in this world, in order for it to exist, has to have an infusion of the divine inside of it. That which is negative and unholy in the world are not directly plugged into God, but they have and they possess within them the sparks of the divine. Sparks of holiness, which are holy, but they're now enclosed and trapped and in exile in the forces of darkness, in satanic forces, in forces of evil. And they're trapping this goodness. And this is the idea that I mentioned earlier, that the world is a mixture of good and evil. That divine energy is good, it's holy, it's very much part of God. And as we're going to see soon, it comes from actually very, 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 very powerful, powerful, sublime levels within the divine scheme itself. It comes, in a sense, from higher places, even where the source of holy good things come from. The unholy is rooted very, very high. But currently, these are energies that are lost, so to speak. They are stuck. They are trapped. Little sparks, imagine little crumbs of God, if we can imagine that, spread throughout the world. Now, why are these crumbs encased in encasements of darkness? Why? So the answer to that is, God wanted to have a world where there is going to be a choice, where people are going to have a choice to choose good from bad. God wanted a world where there's going to be a relationship with Him and the relationship should be meaningful. If there's only good and you can only be in a relationship, there's no value to the relationship. So therefore there has to be good and there has to be a choice of the opposite from good. The holy and the unholy. But how is the unholy going to come into existence? So the way the Kabbalists explain this concept, okay, this is the Jewish idea, a deep mystical idea that was revealed by God to Moshe Rabbeinu, or it came to us through Elijah the prophet, I'm not exactly sure, but the Arizal and the Zohar, they're all relating to this concept. And what does it say? It says as follows, that initially, see, because here's, here's, the, here's the idea, since God wants there should be a temptation, or there should be possibilities in this world that should be ungodly, and the problem is that since everything is only being brought into existence through a flow of energy that's divine and divinity is perfectly good, how in the world are you going to end up with things that are, that are anti-God, that are evil? So the way, the, being that God is omnipotent, He can do whatever He wants. So He can do that. But how, in what manner did He do that? The manner that Hashem chose was He made that the energy flow that flows into the universe should flow into the world, not in a direct manner, but it should go through a process of disconnecting. It should go through a process of a certain breakage. That breakage causes a collapse and that collapse a shattering and the shattering brings carnage. All the unholiness in the world is all the carnage that came about through some kind of primordial cosmic spiritual, something taking place in the dynamics of the divine and the spiritual, a certain shattering, a certain breaking, 
which made that the energies of the divine become lost and disconnected from their source. And once they're disconnected from their source, they can act in a way that is pretty much ungodly. They still have godly power because they're of God. But since they're lost their direct communication with their source, they become sort of like independent powers that kind of do their own thing. Now obviously, let's understand, everything is always under God's administration. But yet, even though it's under His administration, it's still acting in ways that, which God allows them to be working against Him. And that's where evil comes to the world. So this, the way it actually plays out. So the way it works, how did, how did God bring about that shattering? So the shattering is called, so this primordial world, let me just name it, it's called Olam HaTohu. It's called the world of chaos. And that is initially, so the way it works, Just I know this is a lot of information, especially for those that have not studied Jewish mysticism, and I'm not expecting you to get all of this, even if you don't get the whole class, but you'll just get the main idea. Initially, when God emanates energy to create the world, He emanates certain vessels, containers. They're going to receive His light, His energy. In those vessels, He projects His unfiltered and undiminished, unscreened energy. That's called Oros, the energy of Tohu, of chaos. The reason they're chaos is because they're not considering the recipient. They're, they're, they're flowing with all the extreme intensity of an infinite being that has no limitations and no boundaries. So it's coming forth with such power and such strength. Intentionally, God made it that way. So what happened to the vessels? Because the vessels were not cut out to be able to receive such intense revelation, those vessels shattered. Now let me be very clear, we're not dealing with glass. We're dealing with some spiritual, spiritual, mystical, divine concept that we have zero understanding of what it means, but we do know that this happened. So there is a shattering of these containers because they can't handle this intense light of the world of Tohu. This is hinted to in the Bible, right in the beginning of the book of Genesis of Bereshus, right when the second verse of Genesis, it says in the beginning when God created heaven and earth, the next word says the earth was tohu. Tohu means it was chaotic, vavo and confusion. This chaos is referring to this primordial existence in which the energy was so godly and so intense, but precisely because of that, it caused a shattering and a breaking. These vessels fell low, 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 low. Far flung. Far flung means distant and removed from divine consciousness, and they become the source for all forces that are unholy. And let's just say, when I say unholy, I don't mean extreme evil, just unaware of God. And if they're unaware of God, they become aware of self. And when you're, when you're aware of self, then you become more important than God. You are everything. And then obviously any other entity becomes, then, then that means that you're God. And then anybody else is another God. And then you want to, if you're God, you want to conquer all the other gods. And that's what brings bloodshed, war, hatred, envy, jealousy, and all, all negativity. It all is based on the shattering of the vessels and these energies becoming disconnected and separated from their source. 
then, but that's, that's not yet the process of actual creation. That serves to create the debris, the stuff, from which all the negative forces within the world or all unholy stuff in the world are going to be created from. Then, in order to allow for the, for the process of the world, now if the world would, would have been created just from this mess, what would have been is we would have a mess and we would have an unrepairable mess. We would have a situation which is dark and ugly and low and unrepairable. What would be the purpose? So then the Kabbalists say God emanated a second force. The second force was he prepared new containers and new vessels. These new containers and these new vessels are called the vessels of Tikkun. They're called rectified vessels. Number one, these vessels are durable. They're broad vessels. They're intense, powerful vessels. Now we discussed in my other classes, you can listen, we discussed this in hours upon hours of what does this mean. I'm not trying to explain that now. But these are durable vessels. And in these vessels, Hashem reintroduces energy. God reintroduces energy. The second infusion of energy is much weaker than the first infusion of energy. Why? Because it's filtered, it's constrained, it's limited, it's considering the recipient. So therefore, the vessels are able to receive it. So the creations that are going to be the effects of this light and vessel fusion, which becomes the building blocks of creation, forces of creation. In Kabbalah, these vessels are called sephirot, attributes. These attributes now become the building blocks. They become the fundamental powers through which God creates the universe. Since these vessels have never shattered, so their energy that flows through them and the consequential creation that's created is a creation that's connected to its source, which means it's not broken. It's repaired. It's attached. It has an inherently godly awareness, godly consciousness, and instead of it being a god, it is surrendered to the singular god that's creating everything. It's in a state of submission to its source. And that, my friends, is the essence of holiness. Holiness is everything that recognizes its source and therefore is surrendered to it. Now when God created the world, He created the world through the blend of these two powers. In other words, it's the power of Tikkun that now creates a world, but it's creating it along and on top of the debris of that shattered, broken world of Toyo. So what we have in the world ends up is a mixture of mostly stuff that needs a lot of repair, but there is also the inherent already embedded in the world, its ability to repair itself because of the second channel. Now the second channel is in a sense, on the one hand, far superior to the first channel. The second order is far superior than the, than the, than, um, than the first order. The rectified world is far superior to the chaotic world in the fact that it's rectified. The fact that it's living in truth, it's not living in lies, it's not living in deception, it's not living in ignorance. It's enlightened, it knows. But on the other hand, the world of the first order and the consequential entities that come from the first order, and that is that intense energy of the world of Tohu, which... Uh, which translates into a mess, into a world that's potential evil and ugly and horrific and dark, and who knows what, has a, has a tremendous supremacy over the first world. 
And over the second order is that it is connected essentially to a much far more infinitely more potent and powerful expression of God. A, a expression of God's ultimate truth, not filtered and screened, but God's true essence of who Hashem really is. But in order for it to be able to reconnect, but it's but 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 it's its downfall or its downside is that it comes from that place, but it's a gazillion miles away from that original state, and it has no antenna to be able to attach it back. It has no means to be able to get back to its original light. It's completely severed. So here is where you have the integration of Tikkun and Tohu. Those entities that come from the world of Tikkun need to, it's not, are not, can't, do not fulfill the purpose of creation by them serving God and singing hallelujah to God. The entities of Tikkun cannot just praise God and, and live their lives in accordance to God's dictates in a holy, godly way because even though they're going to be channeling holiness and everything is going to be good, but we're always going to be connecting to a very limited, 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 minuscule expression of God and not to the ultimate revelation, which is the messianic revelation, which is Hashem's infinite, powerful, potent, truest self. The only way those entities that come from the world of Tikkun can enter and achieve and connect to the raw, to that infinite light of Tohu is via the shattered, broken stuff. So we need to go out to the world, to those creatures and beings that are inheritors of these sparks of Tohu and fix them. Take that good potential and draw it into holiness. Enable that that world to become assimilated into goodness by doing what? Since it's a mixture of good and bad, the bad has to be separated and 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 cleaned. It's like taking gold out of the earth. Initially, a gold nugget is dirty. It has gold, but it also has a lot of sediments and dirt. You have to put it in through, into the cubicle, into a hot, melting, burning furnace, burn it to melt it, and then you can separate the good from the bad. And it's interesting, when you look at the gold initially, the gold doesn't look so dark. Initially, the gold, but the gold is also not so bright. It's not so valuable. It's not so clean. And the dark is not so dark. Once you separate it, the, the darkness, the, the sediment, the dirt becomes very filthy. So if you're giving it to a goldsmith and you say, I found this, I actually saw it on the news that, uh, that someone found this big gold nugget. Imagine you take it to the goldsmith and you say, can you clean this for me? And you're watching the process and you're saying, Gavald, what are you doing? You're making it so filthy. You're ruining it. You made it much worse than it is. So he says, patience, have patience. The more he's extracting, the dirtier it looks on the surface. That's true. It's dirty and ugly because he's separating the good from the bad. But once he separates all that dirt, then all he needs to do is take a cloth, make it wet, wipe the dirt off, and you're left with clean, beautiful, high-value gold. In humanity and in the world, there is gold and there is stuff there that need to be extracted. Sadly, what we are watching right now is an extraction. And it's scary to think, but this is the truth. Those that are lining up with God from amongst the nations of the world, those that are lining up with goodness and kindness, those that are lining up with the Jewish people, 
which by hook and by crook, whatever the reason is, it makes a difference why, why, where, and when. The Jewish people are the nation that God chose to be the major players in unfolding the purpose of creation. And that's the only explanation why we've been so persecuted and why we've been so enduring that we've outlasted all of our enemies. You gotta be completely, I'm sorry for using the term, literally insane. Okay, that wasn't such a bad term. Not to see that that the Jewish people's survival and coming back to our homeland after all that was done from the pharaohs and the, 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 the Tituses and the Hamans and the Hitlers and the Stalins and the, uh, the Inquisition, whoever they were, and the Crusaders and who knows what, all the enemies that have been again and these white supremacists and who knows, that have tried and given it again and again and again and again, all their efforts. And yet, Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people are alive. And we're a minority, we're small. People don't even realize that we're not even... We're maybe 15 million people. That's nothing. Talk about 8 billion people in the world. It's almost like the amount of news that we occupy. You would think that Jews are at least 3 billion people on the planet. We're 15 million, for God's sake. And yet we're here. So it's clear that this is God's chosen people. And therefore it doesn't make sense why God chose. I can't go to a wedding and I can't come to the bride, to the groom and say, well, I don't agree with you by marrying this girl. Why did, why are you, there's so many beautiful girls over here. Look, so many beautiful girls. Why did you choose her? What do you want from me? I choose her. I fell in love with her. This is the one, because it's my choice. We can't change this. This is the reality. And the faster the world accepts this, this is the reality. Now you can choose. Do you love God? And therefore you love God and you love His children? Or do you hate God? Or maybe you think you love God, but you hate His children or you hate His bride, and it's obviously a farce. You don't love Him. That's because, God forbid, a person's heart is, 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 is entrenched and, and, and affected by evil. So what happens? Let me go back. What happens? This process is a process that we, the Jewish people, have been involved with for thousands of years, quietly. When we go amongst the nations, the reason why the Jewish people have been exiled amongst the nations is not just because of our sins. It's not only because we... Why did we sin? We sin so that we will get out amongst the nations. And the reason is because the secret of redemption can only be when Jew and exile will meet together. Because the power of goodness that is embedded amongst the Gentiles... When we filter it and separate it from its dark encasement and take out the good seed that's inside, we, the Jewish people, and the entire globe and universe is enhanced. Not just enhanced, it's enhanced with an infinite enhancement. As good as we Jews could have made the world on our own, we could, let's understand something, we were chosen not to be special. We were chosen to serve humanity. We were chosen so that we can elevate the rest of mankind. So people who hate the Jewish people think because envy because they're chosen have to realize that our choice is not to be special. Our choice is to, so that we can, that for whatever reason, this is God's scheme and plan, that the Jew can together work with the non-Jew and together. Now the non-Jew will contribute to the Jewish people what the Jewish people don't have. And that is this energy from this infinite place. Because once... They support Israel and support the Jewish people. They're tapping into an energy that's so immense and so intense. And they're giving the, the, the powers of holiness certain 
infusion of power, of potency that holiness does not have on its own. That's the interplay of Jew and Gentile. After thousands of years of purification, which the Jews do when they're living amongst the Gentiles' nations and learning Torah and doing mitzvot and sharing their values somehow, even though we were being persecuted, but somehow rubbing off on the Gentile nations around us, eventually what happens is once we're done, which is right now, is when you suddenly see the result of everything we've done. And you see goodness moves to one side, and that which is ugly and evil moves to the other side. And we're watching it in front of our eyes. Now, let's understand, now I'm going to take you a little bit into a, again into the mystical side of things, please excuse me for this. And um, I think you'll really enjoy this to see. Why is the Zohar talking about the birds? Now let's understand. When the Zohar says that right before Mashiach comes, God is going to go out and wage war, and there's going to be a massacre and billions of corpses. The corpses mean exactly this. It means that the good that there is in the world, not in everything, in, 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 amongst the Gentile nations, amongst the in, inanimate objects, amongst the plants, amongst the animal kingdom, the good that's in the world is elevated. And that which for whatever reason belongs to the non-good gets separated. What's going to happen to it in the end? Once the good energy goes out of it, once the spark of holiness leaves it, once the good people separate from the negative and pull out of it, the negative doesn't, will, will decay and fall apart on its own because it will collapse on its own lies. Because it's nothing but a lie. There's nothing there. It only survives with the tiny little bit of truth that it has. But it only has truth as left as long as the, tr- the good is mixed with the bad. Once the bad gets, once the good gets extracted from the bad, the bad disintegrates and falls. That's the meaning of this corpses. That means that the soul leaves the body. That means, doesn't mean that people are dying. It means that the soul, the goodness that's amongst the, 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 the nations and amongst the worlds, join up with Israel and become big supporters of the Jewish people, Israel, and of God, and want to live moral, decent lives according to the seven Noahide laws, and want to do the right thing. That's what it means. This is the goodness from the, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the goodness that gets separated. And the corpse that's left over is that is the is is the leftover darkness that has nothing to it, and that's what the Zohar means when it says the birds of the heaven will come and will eat, and so to the animals of the beast. So now we're going to introduce another kabbalistic idea, which is really really phenomenal. And bear with me. And the idea is as follows: We spoke about the vessels that God channels His energy to the world through two through two systems of vessels. The first system which shattered, and the second system that that was... Um, by the way, how could I have forgotten? There's something that, I, that obviously I didn't say, but it's obviously self-understood from what I was saying. The Jewish people, their souls, the Jewish soul is a unique soul. It's different than the souls of all the nations in the world. The Jewish neshama, soul, derives its source from the second order of divine, the second um, system of tikkun, where things don't become disconnected. That's why it's natural to the Jewish people to have inherently a deep awareness of God. 
Now, it's possible for a Jew to become assimilated in the, in, in, and be impacted by uh, heresy and, by, um, and to be a, 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 a heretic and a, and a non-believer and an atheist and so on and so forth. And that's possible because God put us in a world of a mixture of good and bad. But the Jewish neshama, the soul itself, is inherently from this world of tikkun. The Gentile world in general is from that first order of the world of tohu. And that's why the Gentile world has tremendous potential. But they need to be influenced by Jewry and by, and, and, by, and by the observance of Torah and mitzvot from the Jewish people. That creates this, this purification. Now, here's, now, now, now we'll understand what's this deal with birds and, and, and animals and why the animals are eating the body. Why is everybody eating the bodies? What is the meaning of that? And why are the animals eating for 12 months and the birds are eating for seven years? So the, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's father, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak, explains that that has to do with the dynamics. Two questions. Why birds and animals? What does that mean? What is the deeper spiritual significance of it? Why birds are involved in this project for seven years and animals are involved in this project only for months? Sorry, for months and birds for years. And why the number seven by the birds and the number 12 by the animals? So we'll understand this. And again, this will give us tremendous insight also on what's happening, I think, now. And that is as follows. This system of attributes that I spoke about before, where energy flows. And remember, let's stop for a moment to think about the two systems the first intense system and the second system. Let's talk for a moment about each one of them independently. We said earlier that God's energy flows through attributes. Those attributes are called spherot. The purpose of those attributes, by the way, is to make God be a little closer to finite existence so that he can relate and create a finite world. God inherently is infinite, infinitely transcendent, infinitely undefinable, and therefore we would not be able to relate to him in any way whatsoever because we would zero have no point of reference. So what does God do? For example, we refer to God as a compassionate being, or we can refer to God as a kind being. How can we say God is kind? That's a definition. How can we say God is intelligent? That's also a definition. Intelligence is inherently a creation. Kindness, compassion, these are all limited things. As high as we can imagine them, they're still limited because they're defined. But if we wouldn't have anything to relate to, then we couldn't be in a, we couldn't, who are we going to pray to? A cold, undefined being that has no definition, how do we, what do we want? Compassion, he, he doesn't have compassion. He, kindness, he doesn't have kindness. So the answer is, God, through the attributes, assumes a certain personality. That personality is a human personality. God assumes a personality of a human. Obviously, the human of God is like a superhuman. And we're tiny little, tiny little peep squeaks of. And the truth is, our personality that we have intelligence, our human psyche, we have intelligence, we have emotions, we operate through a certain system, is because we're, we're created in the image of that human. The human above is the source for the human below. 
And like this, we have a point of reference. We can imagine God as a compassionate father. We can imagine God as a loving mother. We can imagine God as a warrior. We have an image. We have, because one of the attributes of God is victory. And that makes him like a warrior. We can imagine God as a judge, because one of the attributes of God is discipline. And that's why he's a judge. We can imagine God as a king, because one of the attributes is kingship. And so on and so forth. And when we're imagining, it's not fake, it's true. Because Hashem, God, it's a, again a, a deep mystical concept, lowers himself down, contracts himself into these attributes. Now, if we're saying God is human, is he man or is he, is he, or is he woman? Which one? Is he male or female? Humans come in two, two, in two forms, male or female. And the answer is, if there is in human beings that are created in the image of God, male and female, it has to be that in God as well there is male and female. So who is the male? So what does it mean? Now, let's, let's, let me explain this one more time. I want you to get ideas that we have two gods in Judaism. We have one singular indivisible God that is not defined by any definitions. But when God lowers himself down to project his energy and his life force to the creation, he does contract himself into a certain spiritual type of a form that we have to realize that it is anthropomorphically speaking that even though we're creating an image, we're thinking with our physical mind, so we're not really... But we understand that it's on a level way, way higher than we can imagine. But in any case, God, once he projects into that, there is a male form and a female form. The male form is called, is called are the six emotions of God, or sometimes referred to as the seven emotions. Seven emotional attributes of God, they're the male. The female is the seventh emotion standing independently, that's female. How can the seventh emotion both be male and female? Well, it's the same like when Grad created Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. Eve was once part of Adam. That means the feminine element was once included in the singular human, which was male, male and female together. And then she was an operation, surgery, the first surgery, God separated Eve and separated and she became an independent entity, female. So the way it works is like this, the, six, the seven emotions of God, the structure, spiritual, emotional structure of the divine are, is called male. Then the seventh one, which is the attribute of malchut on its own, kingship on its own, is female. And that's also referred to as shekhinah. So the masculine side in the, in, the, in the terminology of the sages are called hakadosh baruch the holy one blessed is he, or in the terminology of the Kabbalists, it's called Zeir Anpin, the small face of God. It's male, feminine side of God, called Malchus, it's called Shekhinah. And therefore, everything that is created in the world is either male or female. Because everything is created through these attributes, depending on the primary source of where the energy is coming from, will decide if it belongs to the male side or the female side. For example... In the celestial beings above, when we look into the heavens, you have the sun and you have the moon. The sun is male and the moon is female. What makes me decide that the sun is male and the, and the, and the, and the, and the moon is female? That's because the sun, what's the difference between male and female? In, let's talk about the creation of a child, in which you can see the roles very distinct between a male and a female. The male generates the seed and he transmits this to the woman 
the woman receives that, that substance and develops it into a child. So when you talk about, so therefore the male is associated with transmitter, giver, and the woman is, 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 is seen as recipient, receiver. Male giver, woman receiver. So when you look at the sun and the moon, the sun is not a receiver. The sun is just a giver. It emanates powerful light. The moon doesn't have any light. The moon re- rebounds or reflects, reflects the light of the sun that shines on the moon and reflects it to earth. So the moon is a recipient and bouncing light off down to the earth. So she's like, she's the woman. That's why a woman has a cycle of 30 days, or menstruation, um, or cycle of birth, and it's the same like the moon. The moon cycle is 30-day cycle. The women's are programmed to be similar to the moon. The Shekhinah and the moon all associated one with each other. Okay, that's one idea. Now let's take a look at another example where you have man and woman in the universe. The sky, the heaven, is male, the earth is female. Heavens are male, earth female. Same reason. The heavens are the givers. In order to produce anything in the world, everything produced in the world, all food, everything we eat, it's all coming from the earth. All coming from the earth. But the earth can't produce anything unless it first receives from the sky. The sky pours rain. That's like the transmission of the seminal fluid. The rain comes down. The earth is like the big, big, like the woman, and she receives it, takes it into her womb. She produces the child, which is everything that the earth produces. So the woman has all the power to produce, but it's empowered by what she's receiving from her husband. So heaven is male, and woman, Shamayim is male, and and Aretz, earth, is female. So the source of earth is in the attribute of the feminine attribute of God, Malchus. The source of heaven is in the masculine side of God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or the Ze'er Okay? Now, let's take it a step further. The Zohar says that there are two types of creatures that are going to be involved in this feast in the end of days, of the corpses. So what does that mean? There's birds of heaven, and they're animals of the field. Bird, birds of oh, so the birds of heaven, since they're 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 called the birds of heaven, it is for that reason that they are um, they're related to the masculine energy. The beasts of the field, since they're coming from earth, they relate the beast of the earth, so they relate to the feminine element. They're derived from the feminine element of Shekhinah. Why are these two forces involved in the final rectification? So when we say birds and animals, we don't mean physical birds and animals, vultures and who knows what. Bears and lions. We mean spiritual dynamic forces, masculine forces of holiness, feminine forces of holiness that are involved in eating the flesh. What does eating the flesh mean? So before we go there, I do want to say that the reason why we're suddenly even talking about birds and animals, the Zohar mentions it. It's because it's in terms of the final revenge on the nations. It's because when the nation, when Rome perpetrated its sin against Israel, the verse says in Tehillim, there's a verse in Tehillim and Psalms where the verse says as follows. In chapter 
89 in Tehillim. It says, Nosnu es nivlas avodecha. They gave the corpses of your servant, machol, to be food. Laofa shamayim. It says, when, they, when, when, the, when Rome destroyed the temple, they exiled the Jewish people. And then it was not metaphysically, then it was physically. Jews were massacred and killed. And they were being eaten there. They weren't buried. The Holocaust was also like this. Many of them. They were, they were being eaten by the birds of the heavens. Besar chasidecha, the flesh of your righteous one, of your pious ones. L'chai se'aretz, to the beast of the land. And God always works measure for measure. They treated you, my dear children, to be thrown to the birds of the heaven and to the beasts of the field. So the final rectification is going to come about from the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the field. But, my dear friends, please understand, we're not talking about vengeance over here, an eye for an eye, an ear for an ear, blood for blood. The ultimate vengeance that Israel is going to have is that the whole world is going to become so Jewish. Jewish thinking. The ultimate vengeance we're going to have over all the animosity is that all those who wanted to harm the Jewish people are going to start loving the Jewish people. That's the transformation. The biggest revenge you can have on an enemy is if his own child becomes your best friend. That's called sweet revenge. In a good way, in a holy way, a positive way. So when we say the birds are going to eat the flesh and the beasts are going to eat the flesh, that means that holiness powers of holiness are going to consume the materials of the world that up till now we're fighting them and we're unholy, are going to consume it. Consuming it means it's going to become part and included and elevated into holiness and into the, into the godly experience, the ultimate favor you can do for the world, the ultimate goodness. So that's the reason why, and since the world is divided, between these two, masculine and female and feminine. So therefore, we say like this, the nations of the world, the people of the world, are also divided into nations that are primarily rooted in the masculine side of, of the divine, and there are nations that are primarily rooted in the feminine side of the divine. Now even though the nations are not rooted in the second system that I spoke earlier, only the Jewish people and the Torah and the mitzvot are rooted in the second system of the world of tikkun, of rectification, of reduced energy, but connected energy. The nations are, 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 are plugged into the primordial and rich initial world of intense energy of the world of chaos. But that energy of the world of chaos is also called man. That also has attributes. As we said before, the, ves- the only problem is the vessels exploded. They couldn't handle the energy, but it was also in a human form. It was also a form. And that's why in, in that world, over there too, there is also male and female. So the energies that are rooted in the male side of that intense world are the nations that are rooted in the male, on the masculine side. And then there are the nations from the 70 nations that are rooted in the feminine side. Corresponding to the nature and the character of all these people and all these nations, global 8 billion people in the world, corresponding to them, again, and this is a purification that happens right before Mashiach comes. So, those that come from the masculine side are going to be consumed and eaten by the birds, 
What does it mean, eaten? The birds will peck at their flesh. It means we'll take them and make them become closer to the Jewish people, supportive of the Jewish people, connected to Jewish causes, caring about the morality of Torah, which is the morality of the seven Noahide laws for the nations to create a rectified existence following and an obedience. And yes, embracing God and loving God, not throwing God's name out of the, out of, out of the Constitution. God forbid. So it's included in holiness. And those on the left side are also going to be elevated throughout, meaning those that come from the feminine side, which is the side, which by the way, the right side is masculine, left side is feminine, are going to be elevated by the beasts of the land, which the beasts of the land are from the land. Land is feminine. And that's why he, by the way, explains why this takes seven years, the birds feast for years, and the animals feast for months. Because the difference between, remember we said before, sun and moon, male and female. So the sun, time, if we, if we can, if we can um, identify time with the sun, what kind of time do we identify with the sun? The cycle of year, not the cycle of, of months. Because the year is dependent on the seasons. And the seasons is dependent not on the moon, it's dependent on the sun. Primarily on the sun. Four seasons. So therefore, year, this dynamic of time associated with the year is a sun it's a solar phenomenon. And that's the reason why the birds of the sky, and remember, sky is also male, it's all lines up, sun, sky, these are all masculine. So masculine time is related to the year element. Feminine time, moon time, is related with months because when you look at the moon, the moon, nothing happens in the moon in a year, specific, but in the moon primarily every month you have the waxing and the waning, the new moon. The, 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 the concept of a month is completely a lunar concept. Oh, so therefore it's related. That's why the beasts of the land, the land, all female, relates to the feminine world. So it relates to the feminine element of time, which is the months versus the year. Now let's take it a step further. Why over here 12 months? And why over here 7 years? Because I said earlier, the masculine dimension is the seven emotions of God. It's the, it's the composite of seven divine emotions. That's why it's 7 years. It's interesting that Yaakov, from our forefathers, from if you took one Jew, one, one person in history, and you say he personifies the divine element of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of God, it's our, our father Yaakov. He's the perfect of the, three, of the three patriarchs of Israel. So we know that Abraham is the attribute of kindness, Isaac is the attribute of severity and strength, and Jacob, he's the attribute of Teferis, harmony, which harmonizes all the attributes. He's like the center. So in Hebrew, I'm going to use a little bit of this, you can see. In Hebrew, the word for Yaakov, Yaakov is spelled Yud, Ayin, Kuf, Vez. So we know in Hebrew, every letter has a number. So Yud is 10, Ayin is 70, Kuf is 100, and Vez is 2. If you add together, 170 plus 10 is 180, plus 2 is 182. The number 182 is derived 
from seven times the tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton is, let me just add it over here. Tetragrammaton, the main name of God, is the Yud, He, Vav, He, four letters of God. If you do the numeric value of them, it's 26. 26 times 7 equals 182. So Yaakov personifies, that's why his name is Yaakov, personifies the seven attributes of God all wrapped into one. And that's why 7, 7, 182. And that's why the birds of the sky, which are the forces related to this dynamic of the divine, the masculine side, which is seven attributes, um, is going to feast, which means is going to be involved in this purification process for seven. And what seven what? Seven years. Because years is masculine time. Now, for the female... the wrong side. Now for the female side, the name of God that's associated with the feminine element, we said before Shekhinah, it's also the name, one of the names of God is the name, I'll spell it, Aleph, Dalit, I'm going to make a dash because we're not supposed to erase God's name. So I made a dash, so I'm not going to be able to erase it. Aleph, Dalit, Nun, Yud, Ado. Nai, which means my Lord. Okay? That's the feminine side of God. So, four letters. How does this become 12? So watch this. If you take the letter Aleph, and you spell out the word Aleph, Aleph, Lamed, Peh. And then you take the letter Dalet. Dalet is not just a letter, it also is a word. The word Dalet is spelled Dalis, Deles, which means a door. The nun, if you take the word nun, you spell it nun, nun vav nun. And yud, if you want to write it out, you spell it yud vav dalit. If you count all these letters together now, that means the hidden stuff that are in, it's 12 letters. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. That becomes the source of the 12 hours of the day, the 12 months of the year, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's all related to the feminine side. And that's why it's 12 months that the beasts of the field... Now, by the way, under the Shekhinah, in the, in the chariot of Ezekiel, of Echeskel, there are four beasts. You see that beasts are associated with the, the, the feminine side, the Shekhinah. 12, that's why the beasts are involved in a 12 months feasting element. But what is this? Let's understand the depth of this. What this really means is that there will be a purification that's going to happen in the world and where you're going to see that that which is, has holy potential is going to gravitate to holiness. I think it happens subconsciously. Gravitate to holiness. And that which is, belongs to the, to the external, to the, to, the, to, to, the, to the peels and to the shells are going to automatically separate from the good gravitate towards darkness and therefore stand at war with God and against Israel. It's possible to say that the masculine purification that, he's, that the Zohar is talking about and the feminine purification that they're talking about is referring to the two main religions that there are in the world, Islam and Christianity, which they're the nations, they're made up of the stuff of that has collapsed from that initial world. They have all the power but they need some clarification, and that's the role of the Jewish people. So therefore, 
um, 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 Islam, our grandchildren of, their origins is Yishmael. Yishmael is a son of Abraham. Abraham is on the right side, chesed, kindness. Um, Esau, which is the father of Rome, is a descendant of Isaac, which is on the left side. Now generally, the right and left, the right is masculine and left is feminine. I'm not going to get into the reason and explanation of how that works. So that means, you see, take a look, at you see the half the world, I'm not talking about Buddhists and so forth, there's some pagans still in the world, but primarily the two major other religions that there are, Islam and, and Christianity, are divided into these two parts, into these two forces. And they both go through a rectification. And what are you seeing now? Islam has been, till now, a forced so much against Israel and against the Jewish people. What are you seeing the last couple of years? Netanyahu and the, and, the, and the Israeli government are forging alliances with Saudi Arabia, with other nations, Gulf states that are very, very supportive of Israel and welcome Netanyahu and so on and so forth. Somehow they're aligning themselves with goodness. On the other hand, you're seeing Iran, and you're seeing Syria, and you're seeing uh, uh, the, the Hamas and the Palestinians, the ultimate uh, uh, enemies, and try to destroy Israel. So you see that separation that's taking place. We haven't seen that before. That's all on the right side. That's being taken care of by the birds of heaven that are causing that separation. Spiritual birds that we don't see, but yet it's happening. On the left side, in the world of Asa, that's Europe, the United States, America, the whole Christian world... Over here as well, what do we see? A separation that's happening. Those that are taking the sides uh, to support Israel, the Christian right. Over here in the United States, the evangelists, as we said before, the most amazing support. And then, amongst them themselves, there are the European nations, which are the age-old Christian hatred against the Jewish people, Catholic hatred against the Jewish people, that hasn't stopped. And talk about um, the extreme right, um, as we see uh, these white supremacists that have been acting, doing, doing, going on their murderous rampages, coming out of the box now more than ever before. Separation. No more mixed good and bad. Everything is becoming clear. That's the separation that's happening on the left side. It's amazing what, what we're seeing. And that's the final purification. Now, I do want to conclude with something very, very exciting. And something very, very uplifting. And to need, and which I think is like, I think what we witnessed and the aftermath of the Poway shooting is something that is literally biblical. And you can see, you can see in your eyes how God's plan is working like to the dot. But now we can see it. In the Bible, in the, in the Chumash, in Genesis, it described how Jacob, Yaakov, and Esav, um, I mentioned earlier that these two worlds, Jacob, I, said, I mentioned to you, he represents the world of Tikkun, the world of rectification, the second order. Much weaker, but attached. Esav, the older brother, brother older brother of Asa, of Yaakov, we call him Esav in, 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 in Hebrew language, he represents the forces from the world of Tohu, from the world of chaos. That will explain a phenomenal thing, the reason why he was born first. You see, Rebecca, her womb, she's like the mother of creation. And she's a microcosm of the macro. And her birth, that's why the Torah describes at great length that whole birthing process that happened. How she was experiencing such violent, 
pain and she had to go ask what's going on and, the, and, and she was told two empires are going to separate from you. The older one. And it says the older one is going to serve the younger one. What is the meaning of that? And the explanation is as follows. The reason why Esav is the older one because Esav comes from the world of Toyu and the world of To, the world of chaos is what emanated first. That's what emanated from God first and it's so powerful. But because it's so intense and it's so powerful the vessel couldn't hold it. So Esav is born with such incredible potential. That's why you wonder why Isaac, Yitzchak, who's a great saintly son, why does he love his son Esau so much? He loves him. He didn't care so much for his son Jacob. He loved Esau. Why Esau? Why does he love him? Because he saw this unbelievable potential. That's why Esau is red. He's red because he's got that intensity, that power reflecting that infinite power of God. But because that energy is so strong, sometimes you have a teenager who's got so much energy that he's all over the place. And you know for sure something's going to happen to this kid. Either he's going to become the biggest revolutionary guy, he's going to be the most successful businessman, he's going to start, he's going to have Amazon or who knows what, he's going to become a billionaire, a mover, a shaker of the whole world. Or this guy is going to end up on the streets as a gang, as a gangster, he's going to end up in prison. He's going to be in t- whatever. This guy is, on a, is, a, is a murderer because the energy is too intense. Can't, you have to figure out how to channel that energy. So that's Esau. Yaakov, far more reduced energy. He's scholarly, he's intellectual. He learns, he loves studying all day. But his, his energy is much weaker, but he's rectified. He doesn't sin all of his life. He's attached. He's connected. The purpose of creation is not in Jacob and his children. The purpose of creation plays itself out in the joint effort of Yaakov and Esau together. Yaakov needs to rectify his brother Esau. He needs to elevate him. He needs to connect to him. Because Esau's got the energy. Yaakov's got the brains. The brains and the energy together, you're going to have an incredible world. A powerful world of goodness. A powerful world of, of kindness. So, what happens? If you take a look at their story, they get into a big fight. Yaakov takes the blessings away. I'm not going to get into that whole story. Esau is enraged. He wants to kill his brother Yaakov. Yaakov has to run away. He runs away and he hides by his uncle's house for 20 years. He stays there. For 20 years, he's cheated. His uncle is a big cheater. A lovin'. And he makes his life miserable. But in the end, Yaakov is very successful during those 20 years. He goes there himself. He comes back Loaded with a family, with, with, with wealth, he's coming back. But when he's on his way back, he does an interesting thing. He sends a messenger to his brother Esau. And he says, I am coming to, to meet you, and I want to find favor in your eyes. Which is really strange, because Esau wanted to kill him. Why, 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 wasn't he let, you know, Esau is busy with his own thing. Why is he provoking him? Why is he sending a messenger? Many of the commentaries ask him, why is he sending a messenger? Leave him alone, sneak back into the land of Israel. You're hoping that after 20 years he forgot about you. And go live your life. You'll deal with him if he's coming. Why are you sending someone to provoke him? And the, but let's continue the story before, we, before, we, before I add commentary. But what happens is, in the end, Esau is coming against him with 400 men. In other words, that whole idea of finding favor in his eyes backfired. Esau is coming against him with 400 men. He wants to literally bite his head off. And as Yaakov is preparing for that encounter, he prays this. And there's a story there. In the middle of the night, he gets into a fight with an angel. And that angel we know is the angel of Esau. Esau's angel. Esau's angel. And the angel hurts him. He, 
he uh, dis- dislodges his thigh, his uh, sciatic nerve. And, but then, but, but, but you're fighting against an angel. Yaakov prevails, Jacob prevails over the angel. He wins the battle. And the next day, he meets Esau himself. He bows down to him. They meet. And instead of what Yaakov was expecting, that literally he was going to crunch his neck, crush his neck, or crush his head, they have a moment of reconciliation. Brothers kiss and they cry. It's a very deep moment. And then what happens? Esau says to Yaakov, you know what, my dear brother, I get to meet your family now. Why don't you come see my family? Come now, we'll have a barbecue together. Come see me. You'll get to meet all the cousins, the grandchildren, your children, all my children. Let's have a nice Sunday barbecue. And Yaakov says to him, you know what, yeah, I'm coming. You go ahead, I'm going to come. And Rashi, great commentator on the Chumash in the Bible, asks, and the Midrash asks this, Yaakov, Yaakov never went there. Was he lying? He said he's going to come. He's waiting for him. He prepares a barbecue. Why aren't you going? So Rashi says, Yaakov is saying the truth. He's going to arrive. Not now. It might take another couple of years. He's going to arrive when? Rashi says, in the end of days, after the end of history, right before Mashiach comes, what does it say? It's the last verse in the Pasuk in Ivadya. It says, when it talks about the, 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 the final stage of Esav. It says, that the saviors are going to go up on Mount Zion. To judge the mountain of Esav. And, to God, and then finally God will be king. So what does this mean? What does this mean? When it says, let me just shut that. So what does it mean when it says, and that's when Yaakov is going to go see his brother Asa. That means it's a three and a half thousand year journey where he's finally going to catch up with him. So what's the deeper significance behind this? So in a nutshell, there's a long explanation, but in a nutshell, and I'd like to share with you that what happened in the aftermath of Poway, to me, looks like a biblical prophecy. So what happens? You see, when Jacob runs away from his brother Esau and he goes to Uncle Lavan to work there, that represented the exile of Israel. Because we know that everything, in order for the Jewish people to be able to endure something, we need that our supergiant ancestors, the patriarchs, should first be the trailblazers. When they did it, they empowered us to do it. So when Yaakov can say to us, don't worry, my children, you're going to exile. I've been there, done that. So I can tell you, you'll survive. So Jacob, Yaakov, goes to Lavan's house for 20 years. It's interesting, 20 years. How long were the Jewish people scattered amongst the nations in this last exile? 2,000 years. We're close to 2,000 years. We're 50 years away from 2,000. So it's 2,000-year process. What was Yaakov doing during, during those 20 years he was in Lavan's house? When he sent a messenger to Esau, he tells him, I was keeping the 613 commandments. And love on Garti, with love on I lived, Rashi says Garti is the same numeric value as the word Taryag. Taryag means 613. Yaakov kept the, the commandments. What does that mean? Why does Yaakov have to keep the commandments in, in Lavan's house? He can keep it in Isaac and Rebekah's house, and Yitzhak and Rivka's house. Why does he have to keep it over there? 
The answer is that's the secret that we spoke about before. It's not enough that Jews learn Torah and do mitzvot. We have to take the Torah and the mitzvot and use it as a filter and purification process to purify the nations in the world. That's what, why. Because we need to pull out the sparks of tohu, which are those powerful sparks. We need to take those shards from that ancient world and integrate them into the Jewish experience. Without that, we're lacking all potency. We're lacking all energy. And, and that's not the purpose of creation. God loves the Gentiles as well. And He wants them to be part of it. It's all part of that experience. So therefore, the Jewish people need to go into the lands of the nations. And that's what Yaakov did and keeps the mitzvahs. And on one hand, he's minding his own business. But on the other hand, he's impacting Lavan very much. After the 20 years are over, Yaakov feels that he's done. He's ready already for Moshiach. He's ready already for the end of days. <clears throat> Of course, in the microcosm, not in the macro. So what does he know? But he knows that in order to go to Mashiach, he rectified the vessels, the shards, but he hasn't yet gotten the energy. Now you have to reconnect these shards and pull down the origins from where these sparks come from, that infinite light of the first order. And only then, kaboom, we will experience the ultimate fusion of the energy of Tohu with the vessels of Tikkun. The world of chaos with the world of rectification will merge and, and have fusion together. So what does Yaakov do? He's helpless, he can't do it himself. That's why he goes and he provokes his brother, because he can't go without his brother. So he calls his brother Esav. And he says, Esav, I'm coming. Because I need you. Without you, I can't do anything. But lo and behold, Esau wasn't ready. Esau was not yet ready. He has not yet. Yaakov did his business. Esau didn't do his business. Esau was not ready. Instead, he was ready to kill his brother. So what happens? And then he has a confrontation with his angel. You know what that represents? That represents the Jewish people going to fight while we're doing the 2,000 years in exile. At the same time, we're going to be wrestling the entire time with the forces of Esau that are trying to injure us, to kill us actually. And that was while we were doing our amazing, meticulous project of rectifying the world through the divine project that God gave us of Torah and mitzvot, the very same time we have to watch our back the entire time. Because either we were being persecuted, we were being expelled, we were being, we were being massacred, we were being programmed, we were being uh, dragged into churches and forced conversions, or they wanted to do that, we were being burnt in the inquisitions, we were being chased by Chemlinetsky's uh, gangs of Kazakhs. No, this was going on the entire time. That's that terrible injury. And after 2,000 years... We're finished. We're done. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe announced in 1991 that we've already finished our work of rectifying the nations. We're done. The world is purified. The world is ready for the redemption. Ah, but there's one thing missing. We cannot go to the redemption on our own. We need the nations. That's why the Lubavitcher Rebbe asked of us that Jews now, you have to start, could be one of the reasons, we have to start getting the nation's cooperation. We have to start getting the nations to keep the seven Noahide laws. Get them involved. We need their energy. Fine. But what happened? We have to say that we've done, we've had some success with our brother Esau, because that's what we've been doing all these years to rectify him. So where do we see the rectification of Esau? And again, what's Esau? Esau is the Christian world. Rome, Christian West. Where do we see that rectification? So let me share you where you have that rectification. According to my little mind, the European Gentile was 
a mess throughout the dark ages. A mess. America is the first symbol of true, admirable civilization. The immigrants that came to the United States, the first pilgrims who came here and established the United States, established a constitution. It's a civilization based on righteousness, faith and belief in God, freedom of religion, freedom. Uh, it just it was just a. It's the closest type of a society before the Messianic era. That's the first fruits that we've produced, the Jewish people, as a result of our purification process, have caused this purified Gentile in the United States of America. And you see that God blessed America. Unbelievable, because it was so special. In a sense, we can call America Asav. Asav is the entire European race. America is Har Asav, the mountain of Asav, because it's, what's a mountain? It's elevated. It's Asav elevated. It's Asav being rectified. Now I must add one more astounding idea, and which will take another three minutes, which will really like, like, and suddenly everything we've spoken about today will click so strongly. So let me share with you as follows. These two forces, dynamics, of the primordial world of chaos and the world, the rectified world of Tikkun, are associated with two names of God. The primordial world of Toyu is associated, both of them are associated with the name of Hashem, of Yud Kevavke, which is the Tetragrammaton. But there are two manifestations in the Tetragrammaton. There are more, but for this discussion, Tetragrammaton that we mentioned earlier, Yudke Vavke is numeric value is 26. But it also is possible to be the numeric value of 45 and the numeric value of 52. So now let me show you first the numeric value of 52. How do you get 52 from the Tetragrammaton? It's called Shame Ban, the name of 52. The way it works is as follows. Take the God's name and you spell it out the same like we did before. You spell it out. Yud. Yud Vav Dalit. That's Yud. That's how you spell the word Yud. Then you take the, the Hey, the next letter. I'm putting a little star because I don't want to write a God's name, as I mentioned earlier. And you fill the Hey with another Hey. Because how would you fill a Hey? Hey, Hey. Okay. Then you take the letter Vav. No. Made a mistake. You fill the Vav. Vav is filled with a Vav. Vav, Vav. Then you take the letter A and you fill it again with a A. So, when we... When we do this, let's do the, the numeric value. Yud is 10, Vav is 6, Dalid is 4. So together, 10 plus 6 plus 4 is 20. It's 20. You know what? Let me hold the mic. 
so that you'll hear me the whole time. Okay, so Yud is 20. Hey, in Hebrew, hey is 5. And the other hey is also 5. So when we add it up, 5 and 5 is 10. Vav is 6, and Vav is 6. Let's add it up. Vav and Vav is 12. See? 12. Hey again is 5, and hey is 5. Add it up is 10. So let's add this up. 20 and 10 is 30. 30 and 10 is 40. 40 and 12, 52. God's name that equals 52. Now let me share with you. The name 52 is the numeric value of the word. In Hebrew, there's a word that represents animal. Behemah. Behemah is Bez, Hey, Mem, Hey. You spell it like this. Bez, Hey, Mem, Hey. So Bez is 2. Hey is 5. Mem is 40. And Hey is 5. So 40 plus 2 fives is 50 plus 2. Behemah is 52. That means that the name 52 is associated with animal. You know what that represents? The shattered world of Tohu, after it collapsed, and the pieces fell around, and they became part of this messed up world that's disconnected, lacking wisdom, lacking godly awareness, and therefore not surrendered to God, is called the world of an animal. The reason why it's called animals, animal consciousness, because um, it's, the reason it's, it's animal consciousness is because an animal is primarily, an animal doesn't have intelligence, it operates primarily on emotion. That's why the world of Asa, for instance, he was an emotional being, he was governed by, he was an impulsive being, he was governed by his emotions, he was all over the place. But you see an interesting thing. Who is stronger, an animal or a human? Physically. An animal is much stronger. A horse is much stronger than a human. Uh, an ox is much stronger. I'm not talking about a lamb, but a nice big... Why? It's not just because there's this physical built. The real reason why a horse is so strong is because when you're driven by emotion and you don't have the, the filter of intelligence, intelligence slows us down. If I want very much... A burger. I'm very hungry and I walk into uh, a store that sells burgers and I'm so hungry, if I was a cow or a horse, I would walk right over and grab the burger out and eat it. But because I'm a human and I have an intelligence, I think of consequences. So I know I have to get in the back of the line. If it's going to take 10 minutes, so I'll put in my order. That's what it's going to be. I can't grab the first dish that comes out because I'm human. So human intelligence slows me down, weakens the energy. Animal is very intense. It's extreme energy. Now, this is the world of Esav. This is the world of Tohu. This is the world that needs to be fixed. How is it fixed? It's fixed by the Jewish world. What's the Jewish world? Let's redo this. Kabbalistically, the Jewish dynamics... Again, we're working with God's name, the second order, where the energy is filtered because it's governed by intelligence. And therefore, the way we do the same thing, we do Yud, He, Vav, and He, God's name. 
And the Yud remains the same. We fill it with Vav and Dalet. That doesn't change. But here is the difference. The hay, instead of it being a hay inside the filling, don't ask me why, it's a Kabbalistic idea, but the hay gets filled with an Aleph. The Vav gets filled with, unlike before that it was just Vav Vav, since this is called filling it with Alephs, the Vav is filled with an Aleph and a Vav. The hay is again filled with an olive. So you see, this is the setting. You're filling it with olives. Why the letter olive? Because this name of God is going to allow the energy that's flowing through it to be identified that it's God. Aleph is the first letter. It represents number one. It represents the alufo shel olam, the chief of the world. Aleph represents a world very conscious of God. Aleph. This system, this code, will result in that second channel where the creatures are not shattered and broken, they're connected. Let's see how much it's going to equal. Yud, again, is 10. Vav is 6. Dalit is 4. Equals 20. He is 5. Aleph is 1. Equals 6. Vav is six, Aleph is one, Vav is six. Six and six is twelve, plus one, thirteen. Uh, hey is five, Aleph is one, I'm sorry, Aleph is one. Add it up, it's six. Let's do the, let's add this all up. Twenty plus six is twenty-six, plus another t- six is thirty-two. 32 plus 10 is 42 plus 3, 45. So this na- name of God equals 45. Now here's an amazing thing. 45 spells the word Adam. Adam means man, human. Aleph is one. Dalit is 4, Mem is 40. 44 plus 1, 45. See? 45. This creates human consciousness. That creates animal consciousness. That's why um, it's also called, the other name I told you is called Shem Ban, the name of 52. This one is called Shem Ma, the name of 45. Now the word Ma as a word on its own, besides it being numeric, the numeric equivalent to Adam man, ma also means surrendered to a source. Ma means who am I? Moses always, when he speaks to God, says, as he speaks to the Jewish people, he says, who am I? What am I? Why? Because Moses was the epitome of nullification. He was the epitome of rectified consciousness, completely nullified to source. That's the Jewish, that's the truth of Judaism to bring the world to a rectification by infusing the entire world with an awareness of God that everything is nullified to God. That is the name 45, Ma. Or it's the idea of wisdom. In Hebrew, the, the word for wisdom is Chachma. Chachma means wisdom. Koch Ma, the pow- which the Kabbalists say is split into two words. The power of what? The power to be quiet. The power of silence. The power... N- 
to surrender yourself to something higher than you. The animal is always making a lot of noise, doesn't have to be silent, he's raucous. The human can be silent to allow a higher idea to enter in. Now watch the most phenomenal idea. After, now go back to Esav. Esav is rooted in the world of 52, in the world of animal. That's why he's so energetic, but he's a mess. Yaakov is rooted in the world of Tiku, in the world of 45. 45 has to fix 52. So after America is America, which is the beginning of the world of Tikkun, when Esav is already rectified. 45 presidents, the 45th president is a president by the name of Donald Trump. He's the 45th president of the United States. He invites to the White House a Jew who was just threatened by a descendant of Esau who came in with a gun and with, with an with a automatic rifle and was going to kill out 50 Jews or who knows what, 100 Jews. By way of God's tremendous love for Israel, which you can see clearly displayed over here, his gun jammed. There's no explanation of how that gun jammed other than it was God protecting. A tragedy happened. Sadly, this woman, Lori Kay, died. Leah Basruvein, may her neshama have a great aliyah. May make great elevation. But this rabbi gets invited to the White House. And as he's standing in the White House, he talks to America. And he says to America, it's not enough to say our thoughts and prayers are with you. No, we have to do something. If you don't want to have any more mass shootings, if you don't want to have any more of these killers, you need to bring God back into the public schools through a moment of, I'll let you say, moment of silence. That's what he calls for, a moment of silence. What silence? Silence is that surrender, that ma, that quietness. That's the whole contribution of the Jewish people, to bring the world to the silence, to be able to hear that there's a creator. It's not me, I'm not blocking, I'm allowing the godly truth to permeate my being. He's asking for a moment of silence. But even more than that, he turns around, please watch this video of Rabbi Goldstein talking. He's standing there like Yaakov, he's broken. And here's an amazing thing. What's his first name? His name is Israel, Yisrael. Why is he called Yisrael? What's the significance of that? Remember, our grandfather Yaakov, Jacob, gets a new name after he finishes fighting with Esau. He gets a name upgrade. Initially, his name was Jacob, Yaakov, and now his name becomes Yisrael, Yisrael means you have defeated the enemy. You have overrode the enemy. You have risen. Akev means while he's still... Yaakov comes from the word struggling with... Why is Yaakov called Yaakov? Because he was fighting. He was, when he was born, he was holding on to the heel of Esau. Esau wants to kick him in the nose with his heel, and Yaakov is holding on. The deeper meaning is that Yaakov wants to infuse... <coughs> excuse me. Yaakov wants to infuse <coughs> his energy, his consciousness of God into Esau's heel. And that's the meaning Yod Doi. His hand stands for Yud Doi. His Yud. He's infusing it by cave Esau in the heel of Esau. He's a, Yud is, is a letter in the Hebrew that's tiny and it represents the Jewish letter that represents wisdom, Chachma, which is Koachma, the power of 45, as I said earlier. He wants to infuse Esau with 45 energy. Esau is a being of 52. He wants to give him a little surrender to God. But when he's done that, he's no more called Yaakov because he's done the battle. Now he's called Yisrael. 
And just like Yaakov, when he was called Yisrael, was still injured. So this Jew called Yisrael, thank you, this Jew called Yisrael in the end of days, as he's injured, comes to the White House. Stands in the White House and looks around to his brother. Now, if you look at President Donald Trump, if there's ever a person that created chaos, it's him, right? There's never been in the United States such chaos. Now, he, I love him. He's a great guy. I mean, he's doing so many good things. But it, he created such animosity, hatred. Impeach him, do this, do that. I mean, it's unbelievable. We've never seen a president that has been either, either you stand on his so, such, why? It, I think it's pretty safe to say is he, he's a reincarnation of Asa. I don't know if he's a reincarnation, but he's definitely that energy of Asa. That's why he's also red. He's also pretty impulsive. Right? That's his nature. But he's a new Asa. He's Asa already, and he's number 45. He's the Asa already that's rectified. He's the Asa that's going to do tshuva. He's the Asa that Yaakov says, I'm going to meet you again one day and we're going to be best friends. And therefore, look what Rabbi Goldstein says. Out of all things, I, I'm, he didn't intend this. I'm telling you, he didn't, he didn't even know what he was saying. He even told it to us. He spoke to us on the phone to all the Chabad rabbis. And he said that when I spoke, I didn't intentionally, I didn't even know I'm going to talk. He says, God opened up my mouth. If God can open up the mouth of the, of the donkey of Bilam, God can open my mouth, put the words in his mouth. He turns around in the middle of his speech after he speaks about the moment of silence. He talks around to the president. Trump is much taller than him, bigger. Here is the Jew, Yisrael, injured, just like Yaakov after his injury, turns around to him and he says to his brother Esav, you, and it's words that made all the people that don't like Trump, especially the Jewish Americans that hate him, sadly, he says to President Trump, you are a mensch par, es- par excellence. You know what means a mensch? A mensch is a Yiddish word for human. You are a mensch. Now, he could have said to Trump, you're a friend of Israel. He calls him a mensch. You know why he said that? That was divinely ordained. He's telling Esau, you have become, we've rectified you already. You're a mensch now. You're no more what, what, what we needed to do for thousands of years. You're not like your ancestor three and a half thousand years ago. You are now a mensch. And that's why you're so supportive. You're so, you're so, you're so inviting of God and connected. Okay. I'm not going to say that President Donald Trump in his own personal life has been the greatest tzaddik. Well, it makes sense. If he's Esau, he has that intensity. I'm not going into judging anybody. I'm just saying, we understand. But, take a look. He calls him a mensch. And then he says to him another thing. He says, I was sitting in my office, or in my home, and I was weeping after his injury. The guy lost his finger. And he watched his beloved community member that helped him out so much who's such a special person be shot dead in front of his face and he just witnessed he was, he was in a situation where a killer wanted to kill all the children that were there men, women and children imagine how the horror he's sitting there and weeping he's experiencing the deepest scar the deepest wound and as he's sitting there crying he gets a phone call from President Trump so he turns to the president and he says dear president you began my healing you are a healer now, if you watch President Trump's face when he tells him, you are a healer, whew, unbelievable, his face changes. He's so touched, he's so moved. Why? Everybody in the America call, I mean, so many people call him a monster. He's been called a healer. Why is he telling him you're a healer? Because Esau was the one who inflicted a wound onto Yaakov. 
Remember we said the angel of Esau caused Yaakov to limp. And that's the 2,000 year exile that we've been gone through. But here Esau is acting opposite. Instead of the crusaders, instead of the inquisition, instead of the pogroms, instead of the Russian, uh, the communists uh, shutting down the schools of the Jewish people and, 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 and sending them to the gulags and to, and to Siberia, instead of being sent to the gas chambers, Donald Trump moves the embassy to Jerusalem. Donald Trump announces the Golan Heights. Donald Trump pulls out of the Iran deal. He's the best, best friend that Israel has ever had. Esau, you're a complete, you're a healer. You're beginning to heal me and obviously healing yourself as well. It's interesting that those who hate Trump, they can't even say his name. They say, impeach 45. Impeach 45. I had a, one, of my, one of people who works, we went down to the park to try to get them to allow us to make an event. So the lady said, it's all 45's fault. He said, who is 45? He said, you don't know. We don't, we don't, I can't even say his name. I say 45. Why is there this hatred? Because what people are sensing subconsciously is the Jewish influence of 45. It has permeated Donald Trump completely. It's elevated him. It's ready to elevate the rest of the world, my dear friends. Don't be afraid of 45. Don't be afraid of the Jewish truth. It's healing. It's the best thing. It's truth. It's connecting you to God. It's bringing you into oneness. Don't be, God forbid, as the world is now taking sides, don't, God forbid, end up in the wrong side against Israel, against, against, because that's, as we said earlier, it's remaining hollow, empty, dead. It's going to collapse on itself. It's going to die. To make this even richer, just to conclude with one more thing, um, if you look online, you can see, type in Google, eight presidents that, exi- that were before George Washington. Do you know that there were eight presidents before George Washington, but they're not officially considered United States presidents because I forgot the, I should have looked, I keep on forgetting to look it up. They're the uh, articles, of, articles of something, they're considered the presidents of that, but not yet the United States. So according to that, Barack Obama if you take, is the 44th president, but you include the eight that existed before, 44 plus eight equals... 44 plus 8 equals 52. So Barack Obama is the 52nd president. What we say before? That 45 comes to rectify 52. So 52 is the America before the rectification. 45. So what we witnessed on the White House lawn is a biblical prophecy. When it says that Jacob is going to go back and meet again with Esau, but this time it says he's going to go there and he's going to, to judge the mountain of Esau. Judging the mountain doesn't mean to punish Esau for his sins. It means, judging means to elevate, to transform. Like it says in Tanya, that Shofet, a judge means someone who gives an opinion. When Rabbi Goldstein stood in front of the United States and all the televisions and in front of President Trump and he told America that if you want to have a rectified society, have a moment of silence where kids can think about who they are and why they're, what they're doing in this world. That moment of silence, which the Lubavitch Rebbe asked should be done. And the Rebbe then said, how will kids know what to think? They will go home and ask their parents, and their parents will tell them what to think. Hopefully most parents are decent parents, will at least want to teach their children to think about God, think about that you have a purpose in life, and there's accountability and so forth. That's the influence, the Jewish influence of Ma, influencing the world of Esau. May we merit already that we shouldn't have to see any bloodshed, and this purification, we've had enough already. And hopefully the world is ready already for the revelation. 
what happens a moment after Yaakov and Esav meet, which I think happened two weeks ago. The next moment is God's kingdom will be revealed. Why? Let's see why. Because the messianic revelation is related to the fusion of the energy of chaos, Esav's source, Esau's source, with Yaakov, with Jacob. And we said earlier that Yaakov wants to find favor in Esav's eyes. Favor means, so that says in, in the Hasidic writings, that favor means that Esav channeled to Jacob his intense energy. That means finding favor in his eyes. I don't think anybody in the world ever found favor in Donald Trump's eyes like when this Jew rabbi stood and said, you are a healer, you are a mensch. There was such favor in his eyes. Whatever it says in the Bible had to happen, happened in front of our eyes. It is so exciting to be living in biblical times and to watch these phenomenal things happen in front of our eyes. What do we need to do? If you're Jewish, wait for Mashiach, spread the word, learn more Torah, do more mitzvahs. If you're not Jewish, keep the seven Noahide laws and befriend the Jewish people. Show support to Israel. Join, speak good of Israel, see, and be, be a kind, decent, good person. Look up the seven Noahide laws on Google and see how it's followed. And you are not only part of the redemption, you're an integral part of the redemption. Without you, there is no redemption. Jew and non-Jew together. Sadly, for those that made the wrong choices, hopefully they can still do teshuva. Certain elements are going to have to be cut off because... That's part of this purification process. May we merit to see it happen in its conclusion now, now, and now.